As you turn to Timothy, First Timothy, I want to ask that we all continue in prayer for Pastor Zane, Jason, and the kids, along with Rex and Tammy, as um, Grandpa Dan passed away, and they are at his celebration of life. That's Zane's grandpa and Miss Tammy's father. So they're in Oregon this week, and they'll be back. But um, we're just—they are missed, and we're just really glad that they were able to spend that time with their family. So we're in First Timothy chapter four this morning. Last week, Zane talked about the marks of a false teacher and the importance of clinging to Jesus and his word. The entire book of 1 Timothy so far has been an instructional letter for Paul to Timothy, his beloved student in the faith whom Paul had left in charge of a church in Ephesus. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 11, so you can follow along in your copy of God's word, or it's up here on the screens. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Verse 11, Paul instructs Timothy to command and teach these things. What things are we talking about? Well, at least the preceding paragraph, really the entire letter and scripture as a whole. But for today, we're just going to review a few that we talked about last week. Paul instructs Timothy to be trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. And to have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, since our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of the world. He's that confident, rock-solid hope that Pastor Zane was talking about last week. And to train yourself for godliness, because it holds value in this life and the life to come. Because our spiritual training has value for our lives, here and now, but also for eternity. In verse 12, we see a very personal note of encouragement here between Paul and Timothy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. This opens the question, what criteria did a person have to possess for someone to respect them in the, according to the Greek world? Well, they were expected to be an elder, an older person. I would say that's the same for here in America, too. We, we would expect this person to have some experience. Paul knew this would be a challenge for Timothy. And most scholars agree that Timothy was in his mid-30s, but he was an experienced missionary and had been with Paul for 15 years. Paul also knew that Timothy was ready to, and could be trusted with this task. We see in Philippians 2, 19 through 22, how highly Paul thinks of Timothy when he speaks of him to others. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned with your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served me, with me in the gospel. And according to most timelines of Paul's epistle, he wrote this church in Philippi before he ever wrote this to Timothy. So even before Paul was able to see the fruit of Timothy's work in Ephesus, he was proclaiming Timothy's dedication to the gospel. As a father instructs a son, Paul reminds Timothy of the call on his life. But Paul doesn't just stop at an encouragement. 
he continued to give wise counsel and specific instructions from the Lord. So again, in verse 12, Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Here, Paul gives a list of ways that Timothy is to be an example that are aimed at all areas of life. The first one is speech. Speech is something that directs that directly reflects the condition of our hearts. The book of James says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give the grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5.4 also says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. It is so important to set an example in our speech, especially for leaders in the church, but as believers as a whole. The second area that Paul lists is conduct, or righteous living. Pastor Zane says this often, What leaders do in moderation, their followers will do in excess. As a leader in the church, in the community, in our workplace, and in our homes, are we setting an example for others with our conduct? The best description of setting a good example in conduct is Paul's earlier instruction in chapter 3 of being above reproach. There should be nothing in our life and conduct that could or might be held against you. I talk to my kids about this all the time. Even if you didn't do anything, if it looks like you were even close enough to be involved, then that leaves room for doubt in people's mind about our behavior. We want to be above reproach. This overflows into our adult lives as well. With even more serious life choices, are we living rightly and above reproach, not out of legalism, but out of a response for what Christ has done, and out of a desire to protect our witness as a believer in Christ. I don't want to do anything that will mar the perception of Christ in someone else's understanding based on how I am living. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then Paul instructs Timothy to set an example in love. The Greek language has many different words for love, but there are four different words used most commonly in Scripture describing love. And the word here in this type is agape. This is a self-sacrificial love for others. Jesus set the ultimate example and encouraged us to follow him in the command that is given in John 15, 12 through 13, when he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So what does this look like in our daily life? It is really hard to narrow down one passage, so Romans 12 gives us a really good outline of how to begin walking in this love. And I'm not going to read the full chapter, I promise, but I'm going to outline the action steps that jump out to me about how we are to love. You might want to write down Romans 12 and be sure to look back at it this week. So, how do we begin walking in this self-sacrificial love for others? Step one, it's by the mercies of God. It's not our own, but only because of the mercies of God. Step two, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Realize that we are supposed to look different than the world. 
Three, do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but rather with sober judgment. That one kind of hurts a little bit. Four, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And this is my favorite one. Love one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. If we're going to be in competition with one another, let it be an honor. Who can honor the, one, the other the most? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer, especially with those that are hard to love. Bless those who persecute you, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And it goes on with so much more, but it ends with, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And none of these things can be done if we're not living of not giving of ourselves and living for the Lord in response to what he has already done for us. We are able to forgive and to love and to honor others because he, Christ, died for us and he first loved us. So we must set an example in speech, conduct, and love, and now in faith. Setting example not only in our faith in Christ because that's a given, right? But also in faithfulness or commitment. 1 Corinthians three eighteen and 19 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And then Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that we must be found faithful. So for overseers, pastors, shepherds, and ultimately all followers in Christ, it's not about how much you know or don't know. It's about being faithful and being obedient to what God has called you to. Then the last thing Paul includes in his list for Timothy of how to set an example as a young pastor is in purity. Purity comes many, covers many aspects of our life and conduct, but especially sexually, sexual purity. We see far too often pastors and leaders in the church body as a whole who fall victim to this, and it shouldn't be a taboo thing to talk about, and it can't be stressed enough. We must be above reproach. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Run away as fast as you can. We cannot allow the enemy to gain a foothold in our lives in the area of purity. We are bombarded on all sides in our culture, and we all must be on guard and committed to purity. Verse 12 says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for all believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Here's the deal. We all have influence, whether you think you do or not. Even a guy who lives in the middle of the woods and never talks to anybody, he's not bothering anyone. He doesn't want to be seen, but somewhere that guy has a nephew telling his parents that he wants to live in the middle of the woods one day, just like his Uncle Joey. So we all have influence. Whether we think we do or not, somebody is watching you. Someone is taking note of how you respond to life's circumstances and how you walk in your daily life, whether it is positive or negative. So what a great honor and privilege and duty we have as followers of Christ to walk in a manner 
that points people to Jesus. Moving on to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Devote yourself. Paul is saying this is to be your way of life. The Greek word here for devote means to give full attention, to set a course and to keep to it. Specifically in this verse, it means to apply oneself or to attach oneself, to hold, to cleave to in a way that a husband cleaves to his wife. You don't separate from it. Devote yourself to what? To public reading and of scripture, exhortation and teaching. Public reading of scripture, this is directed towards Timothy, who is obviously a pastor. So that may seem like it doesn't apply to us as a general congregation. But we are all to set a course, to be devoted to the public reading of scripture, of being in fellowship with other believers and learning together in public. Exhortation, this is a fancy word that means delivering a message to someone. In Scripture, this may involve encouragement, joy, gladness, comfort, consolation. It also may involve warning or rebuke. Teaching, this is the systematic teaching of God's Word and challenging those who hear the Word to apply it to their daily lives. So Paul continues in verse 14 with, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given by the prophecy, the council of elders that laid their hands on you. Timothy and all believers in Christ are given God-designed, spirit-empowered, spiritual gifts for the use of ministry and the edification of the body. So what are some of these gifts? A few examples are seen in Romans 12. That's serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, mercy. 1 Corinthians 12 includes the words of wisdom, the words of knowledge, faith, healing, prophecy, the distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretations of tongues. Of course, this isn't an exhaustive list, but this definitely gives us an idea of some of the ones we're familiar with. So how do we receive these gifts? The Holy Spirit gives the believer spiritual gifts upon their belief. However, they are not always immediately realized. Like a child who grows up to be an athlete or a doctor, they train and grew in the development of their gifts. Many times we are not even aware we possess a certain gift until someone observes this giftedness in us. These gifts are distributed according to God's using and not our own. We should be careful not to covet another's giftings. If we are spending more time coveting someone else's giftings, is it because we simply haven't discovered what it is that God has gifted us in? God is infinitely wise. And he knows which gifts will most be productive through you and for his kingdom. There is one thing that is abundantly clear. If God commands us to do something such as witness, to love the unlovely, disciple of the nations, and so on, he will enable us to do it. But in order for us to walk in our giftings, we have to discover what they are. You know, we don't get a certificate that tells us what our giftings are when we accept Christ as our Savior. Identifying our spiritual giftedness can be accomplished in various ways, but there is no magic formula or definitive test that can tell us exactly what our spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gift tests and inventories can definitely help us understand where our gifts might be, but they should not be solely relied upon. We have to be careful not to allow these things to put us in a box so that we don't ever get out of our comfort zone. 
God is working in our lives, growing and changing us. So a test may reveal something that we are naturally good at or naturally lean to, but God does not limit what he calls us to do. It's only what we're good at. Often he calls us to step out into something that we've never thought we could possibly do, only to reveal that is exactly what he wants for us. My brother and I, we ended up joining the military together, but prior to that, he never wanted to be in the military. And then we get there, and this guy was like a machine. He, he had the aptitude to understand what they were saying. He had the, the courage to put it into function the way it should be, and the extreme humility to just always think that he was one of the normal guys. And it's like, you are the best soldier I have ever seen. But he never would have known that if he had not stepped into that place and it now overflows into the rest of his life. But you would never know it if you talked to him. You would never know he was in the military and such a great soldier. And of course, what I'm talking about is ability. That's not spiritual gifts, but that's how it is when we discover our gifts. We step out into a place we didn't think we would ever do, and that's right where God wants us to be. So confirmation from others also gives us light to our spiritual giftedness. Other people who see us serving the Lord can often identify a spiritual gift in us that we might take for granted or not even recognize. A common problem for Christians is the temptation to get so caught up in our spiritual gift that we only seek to serve God in that area in which we feel that we've been gifted. But God calls us to obediently serve Him in all things. Let us not become so hyper-focused on what our spiritual gifts are that we lose sight of walking in a spiritual gifting is first and foremost an act of obedience to Christ. The best way to discover how God has gifted you is through prayer. The one person who knows exactly how you were spiritually gifted is the gift giver himself, the Holy Spirit. We can ask God to show us how he has gifted us in order to better use our spiritual gifts for his glory. What has God given you an eye for? or a burden for where there are gaps in church ministry that you see and you have an idea for. See where God is leading you and gather those who are faithfully walking with the Lord and lean in to their wise counsel to see where God might be leading you to serve. We actually have a list in the foyer of all the different areas of service that are available on ministry teams. And we would be happy to meet with you guys and just talk about where maybe you would fit. And maybe there's not even something on the list and you're just like, hey, this is an idea. We would love to talk about it. But if we are genuinely seeking God's leading through prayer, fellowship, and studying of God's word, our gifts will become obvious. Psalm 37.4 says, God gives us the desires of our heart. This does not necessarily mean that God gives us whatever we desire. Rather, that he can give us the desires themselves. He can place within our hearts the desire to teach, the desire to give, the desire to pray, and the desire to serve, and so on. It's okay to ask for those desires. And so what is the purpose of our spiritual gifts? Well, it's to edify the body, to build up the church, and to prepare us for the works of service to glorify God in serving others. To edify is a word that we often use, but it literally means to instruct or to improve. We are to use our gifts as a way to improve the church. When he gives us those desires and we act on them, being committed to his glory and the use of our gifts, positive outcomes will result. 
The body of Christ will be edified and God will be glorified. When he gives us those desires that each of us have received a gift, use them to serve one another. Actually, it's 1 Peter 4.10. Let's go to the right verse. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Two things I want to point out about how spiritual gifts should not be used. First thing, spiritual gifts are not meant to be used simply for personal gain. That sounds kind of weird, but it could be possible. It's by God's grace that we even possess spiritual gifts, and pride in our gifts leads us to relying on ourselves instead of God, the one who gave us the gifts. So I used to have a mentor. He was from L.A. That's lower Alabama. He used He used to say a lot of things, and I really do wish you guys could hear the accent that I hear when I say lower Alabama. But anyway, he used to say this, if I fuels you, then Satan rules you. I'll say that again. If I fuels you, then Satan rules you. This is a warning for us. If we find ourselves saying things like, I want, or I need, I'm the only one, or I can't believe, or I wish so-and-so would then we're flirting with a dangerous thing called the God of self, which is all about you, and it is essentially pride, and this is not about us. So are we functioning in our gifts to point people to Jesus? The second way to not use spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts should not be abused by the church or its members. This can manifest in many ways. For example, someone having the gift of leadership And they are seen by the church as the only one that can lead. The body is made up of many parts, and there should always be a Paul and Timothy relationship so that the next generation is growing in these gifts. This can also be manifested in gifts being taken advantage of. Say someone has the gift of mercy in giving. Someone, we we all know people like this, right? They would give the shirt right off their back. But if not coupled with the other gifts of this church, of the church, this person will likely fall prey to being taken advantage of. At times, there are decisions to be made, and coupled with someone that has the gift of wisdom or discernment, a better laid-out plan can be made so that people are not taken advantage of, and those that are in need will be built up in a way that is beneficial for their own growth and the growth of the body of Christ. The reason why I wanted to go down this rabbit trail is because Paul's instruction for Timothy in verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have been given. And we would definitely could spend more time breaking all those down and looking at how these gifts play out in our lives. But for today, we need to be reminded that we cannot neglect our gifts. Do not be careless with your gifts. Do not treat your gifts as less significant than they are. Recognize the value that God has given to you, giftings and tasks that he has assigned for you through that gift. However, when we neglect our gifting or neglect to stepping out into service to find out where our gifting is, we are missing out on the opportunity to see God work in and through our lives in a way that we can never ask or imagine. Sometimes it takes serving in different roles until those gifts can be seen and realized in your life. And then once they are recognized, 
don't neglect the process of growing in those. So, what is the role of the church in affirming these gifts in believers? Coming back to verse 14, said, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. The church comes together to commission, and in this case, it's actually Timothy's ordination. The church is agreeing with the Holy Spirit. They are affirming what they see displayed and lived out in the life of Timothy. The elders are not dictating to Timothy what he should do, but they're affirming what they see in him and allowing him to use his gifts to edify the body of Christ. I do want to quickly touch on the word of prophecy um, in verse 14, because if you're like me, that kind of catches your ear. Um, As Baptists, we don't usually um, know what to do with that word. The Greek word translated prophesying or prophecy in this passage properly means to speak forth. Many people misunderstand the gift of prophecy to be the ability to predict the future. While knowing something about the future may sometimes have been an aspect of the gift of prophecy in Scripture, it was primarily a gift of proclamation, which is foretelling, not prediction, foretelling. So as a pastor or preacher who declares the Bible can be considered a prophesier in that he is speaking forth the counsel of God as long as he is actually rightly teaching and applying the word. So there are a couple, couple of views on prophecy, and I, I would say wherever you land, there is one essential guiding principle, and it is this. Christians are to be very wary of those who claim to have a new message from God. It is one thing to say, I had an interesting dream last night. However, it is quite another matter to say, God gave me a dream last night, and you must obey it. No utterance of man should be considered equal to or above the written word. We must hold to the word that God has already given. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. This means that it is alive in our lives today as believers. It doesn't just apply to the hearers of his words or to the people of that time. It's living and active, moving among the hearts of his people. But this verse does not mean that God's word is changing. So we're going to finish up in verse 15 and 16. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul has said, do not neglect your gifts, and now also practice them. Immerse yourself in them. And this begs the question, when have you arrived? Is there ever a point where you've actually mastered your spiritual gift? In Philippians 3, Paul gives himself as an example. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. And he goes on, he says, if anyone could be considered as one to have arrived, it would be Paul. He lists all of his qualifications and status in the Hebrew community. But starting in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then skipping down to verse 12, it says, Not that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, 
But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Spiritual gifts bring with them a measure of human responsibility. Those who possess spiritual gifts can improve the exercise of these God-given skills by diligent practice. We are responsible for doing the work of training ourselves in godliness, but I say that with a reminder that we can't allow the work that we put in to lead to being self-focused. God is still the one that gives our gifts and allows us to function in them, but we do have the ability to put in the work and the practice and training. Some good questions to ask ourselves today are, have I discovered my spiritual gifts? Am I actively serving and pursuing them? Am I practicing them and immersing myself in learning more about what God has to say about my gifting and how I can use them for His glory? Paul also lets Timothy know that it's important to practice them so that all may see his progress. If you're like me, many people will not even try something unless they're an expert in a certain area. We don't have to come out of the gate knowing exactly how to use our gifts perfectly. It's okay to be vulnerable and to discover, to learn about, and practice our giftings. Remember, professionals built the Titanic, but God used an amateur to build the ark. We want others to see our progress, not just a perfected version of our privately practiced self, so that all may be encouraged to grow as well. I have a quote in my office, and it says, Self-doubt coincides with self-reliance. We may doubt our ability to do what God has called us to, but as we step out into into the things that God has called us to do, let us remember that it is He that has given us the desire, the ability, and He is the one that we're reliant on, not ourselves. Paul also reminds us in Timothy reminds Timothy again here in verse 16 to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching. Remember in chapter 3 where it says if anyone aspires to be to the office of overseer he desires a noble task and that he must not be a recent convert or what? He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's pride. We have to keep on guard from being prideful of the giftings that God's given us. Timothy, too, needs nourishment from God's Word. No one is immune to the constant refining from the Spirit. The more we study and the more we realize how much we don't know. We have to remain attached to the divine. We have to abide in Christ. And lastly for today, verse 16, persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Does anybody ever say persist for something that's easy? Not really. Living the Christian life is not always easy. And so who is this all about? Is this about what I can get and what I need to be comfortable and happy and secure? No. It's about pointing people to Jesus, the one who saves sinners from their sin. And persisting, we can't just pull up our bootstraps and try harder. We've all said, I'll do better when, and it just never happens, right? No, we must persist in dying to ourselves and allowing Christ to do that work in us. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you, giving you the desires and bringing about His glory. Persisting is much easier when things are going well, but not so much when we're discouraged. And there was this, in our training to serve in missions, we, we heard from a man named Sam James. He was a missionary who served in Vietnam 
for 50 years, starting in 1962. He told us story after story of challenges and hardships that his family went through while serving there throughout the war. During that time, their home and their school were burglarized, and they were told by the police that there was nothing that they could do. During this time of frustration, he found himself angry with the very people God had called him to serve. One of the most impactful things that I've heard ever in my life was from him when he said, We think we serve and go because we love people, but our love for people will not be be what sustains us. It is only because God loves people that we are able to serve, go, and give. And it was that realization that spurred Sam James to continue to serve through the more difficult and life and death situations so that the gospel would be proclaimed and more people would come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Simply put, we use our gifts to build up the church because God loves people. Romans 5, 3 through 6 says, Give us even more reason, give us more reason that we persist. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The hope that we have is in Christ. And at just the right time, he died for the ungodly and everything that we do, everything that we are, and everything that we aspire to be is because of what Christ has done for us. And so today, we actually have the gift and the privilege of participating in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And as we turn our attention to the table, let us be reminded of the sacrifice that he has gave for us. Jesus left his throne in heaven. He lived a perfect and sinless life something that we can never do. Though he knew no sin, he offered his life as the perfect sacrifice to pay the debt of our sins. It is only through the death of Jesus that any of us who put our faith in him are able to trust him. We can be set free from the sin that separates us from the holy God, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. It is because of him that we are able to come to the table and to be a part of this family. And if you've never done that, Don't let another day go by without having an honest conversation with the Lord about it. I would be glad to talk with you about it after service. I'm going to ask the deacons to come up for the Lord's Supper, and any of them, they would be happy to talk with you about it and to pray with you. And for those of you who are walking in a relationship with the Lord, use this time to reflect on what He has done for you. Ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Seek His guidance for what He is asking you to do next in your journey with Him. Are you keenly aware of your influence? How are you setting an example? Is he calling you to step into something new, or is he calling you to persist persist 